Welcome to today's IFA podcast on securing food and nutrition in 2022. My name is Alsbeda Klein. I'm the CEO Director General of the International Fertilizer Association. When the war in Ukraine broke out in February this year, it became clear very fast that we are heading for a food crisis. COVID-19 and the effects of climate change had already weakened food systems. I'm remembering a headline from the Financial Times how Russia's war in Ukraine appended the breadbasket of Europe. That's the breadbasket that feeds millions of people. And the World Food Programme, which is the United Nations Humanitarian Food Assistance Organization, gets 40% of its wheat from Ukraine. Today, we'll discuss the evolving nature of the food crisis and examine short-term response measures. We will also look to the future and how to make agricultural systems more resilient. I have a great pleasure of welcoming Dr. David Navarro to this podcast. David is the World Health Organization Special Envoy on COVID-19. He's also the former Special Advisor to the United Nations Secretary General on 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and Climate Change. He has more than 30 years experience in public health, nutrition and development at country, regional and global level. David is a strategic director of the social enterprise 4SD based in Switzerland, and it provides training and monitoring, mentoring leaders for sustainable development. David, thank you for joining us today. So tell us, David, how did you get involved in food and nutrition security issues? Alsbetter, it is an absolute delight to be with you and to be participating in this International Fertilizer Association podcast. I'm actually originally a medical doctor. And I, after I qualified, and it was rather a long time ago, I went and spent uh, uh, quite a lot of my uh, early life working in South Asia and in the Middle East uh, as a doctor. Uh, I was particularly focused on children. And I discovered, and it was pretty obvious in retrospect, that children's health is hugely influenced by what they consume, and in particular, their nutrition. And so more and more, I got focusing on nutrition. What leads to good nutrition? What also leads to poor nutrition? And then how do children's nutrition features link back to what happens in their households, to the diets that their families are eating, to the way in which they produce if they live in rural areas, and all in all, within five years of my getting into child health, I was involved in food, food security and nutrition as an issue. And that stayed my passion just about ever since. So that's me, a medical doctor, nutritionist, and now focusing on food systems issues because they're so incredibly interconnected. So, David, this is a this is a great start. So you focused on children's health. You probably f- focused on stunting and the lack of nutrients that, that this provides. So how do you see the situation today? Uh, even before COVID-19, we had quite a high level of stunting in several parts of the world. We had malnutrition issues in many parts of the world. Where were we a couple of years ago? What was the baseline that we started before COVID-19 hit? Thank you very much, Charles. But... Uh... Actually, the levels of child undernutrition in our world do relate quite directly to what's happening to food prices on world markets. In 2008, when food prices shot up over three or four months and there was a real challenge about access to rice, 
The subsequent consequences did include a massive rise in the number of children who are undernourished, almost a doubling, reaching up to a billion uh, out of the seven billion population in our world experiencing undernutrition. And what we've seen in recent years is that things have been becoming challenging yet again. I think the major shocks include advancing climate change plus COVID-19 with its tremendous impacts on how borders were closed and so on, and then followed by and associated with a number of serious conflicts and taken together, even in 2021, we were seeing food price rises. We were seeing increases in people's difficulty with accessing nutritious food for their households. And it was coming in many parts of the world, particularly places like East of Africa, where there have been successive droughts, but altogether linked to the shocks and the challenges faced by society and and the increases in poverty. Now, just to complete the story, things have really deteriorated this year for hundreds of millions of people with difficulties with accessing the food they need because prices have risen higher than ever and they're only just starting to stabilise. But I want to stress that this has been an issue that has been evolving for some years now, which means that it's going to be quite difficult to resolve too. Right, David. So for our listeners, there are a couple of things that I think are in this equation of food insecurity and malnutrition. One is just a pure lack of calories and one is the nutrients that people need. So with the situation of COVID-19, I can imagine that just uh, getting getting calories in, getting the wheat out of Ukraine and therefore getting Mm. it to places where it's needed is one thing. The second part is obviously nutrition and micronutrients. Am I thinking about it the right way? Are our listeners on the right track here? You're talking to somebody who spent quite a big chunk of the last 20 years working on nutrition as a global issue. I can quite understand people saying, well, all that it matters is people get fed. Uh, That's the vital thing. We shouldn't be worrying about whether they get the right nutrients and particularly the right amounts of protein and vitamins and minerals. I would say nutrients are everything. Yes, we need the food to be fueled to keep our bodies going, but there's no point in fueling a body, particularly of a young child, if that child is not getting the nutrients needed for good health, development, and really achieving their full adult potential. So I'm going to put a big focus on human nutrition as being one of the key outcomes of well-functioning food systems. And I'm also going to say that right now, with hundreds of millions of people facing greatly increased costs of living, it's proving to be difficult for them to ensure that their children get the nutrition they need. And for me, the big challenge right now is women's and children's nutrition deteriorating because of the increased cost of living and the difficulty with accessing nutritious foods all round. Thank you, David. This is even worse than some of us probably imagined. But one thing is just a breakdown of the supply chains after COVID-19, which I'm sure Mm -hmm. uh, contributed to the cost of uh, nutrition. The second part is the 
energy crisis that we are going through right now. And as we all know, energy is food. So how do you see the development after the global crisis response team work on this issue? What is the situation today, two years after COVID and, and with the Ukraine? So the UN Secretary General pulled a group together in the middle of March, and he said to this group, called them the Global Crisis Response Group, what can we do internationally to reduce the likelihood that the war in Ukraine and other conflicts will further damage the nutrition, health, well-being of people all over the world? How can the world respond to these perturbations in food, in energy, and in finance systems so that poorer people can be protected? And that work has led us to, first of all, look at which are the countries in our world which are most exposed to these system breakdowns, and then secondly, who are the people who are most vulnerable to the impact of these changes, and where do they live? And so we are currently analysing countries in terms of their exposure, looking at the same time at their financial strength and also at the extent to which they're impacted by high energy prices. It's a very differentiated picture. The challenges faced by people in sub-Saharan Africa are profound and are linked mostly to challenges with access to food uh, and also access to what's needed to produce food, particularly fertilizers. And we find that simultaneous impact of access to fertilizer challenges and difficulties with accessing food at an affordable price, affecting farmers everywhere, affecting food systems everywhere, and in some places even creating the possibility that in coming months and years we will face actual shortages of some key food commodities. Thank you, David. So when, when I'm thinking about it, as you were explaining the situation, we are basically seeing not one crisis, but two crises, which is the immediate food crisis and then the future food crisis because of the lack of seeds and plant nutrients and others. How do you see that playing out, even if we were to de-bottleneck a supply of grains and oil seeds out of the Black Sea? What does it mean for the harvest, for, for the next and one after the other, one after that harvest uh, for the world. Well, first of all, thank you for really re referencing the challenge of uh, food grains and oil seeds and so on that have been stuck in Ukraine. Because what this has done is it's taken quite a, a, a chunk of key foodstuffs out of the world market and has had a direct impact on uh, global prices. And that, in turn, has compounded the difficulties being faced by countries that import a lot of their food. They've suddenly faced a great big increase in their import bills. And in turn, that makes it harder for people in the countries to access the food they need. When we're talking about it amongst ourselves, we tend to refer to what's happening right now as a food access crisis meaning that there's probably not an overall shortage of the foodstuffs that we need in the world today, 
In fact, there may well be plenty of food to go around. But the difficulty is that there are certain groups of people in all countries who just can't get it. They particularly can't get the nutrition that they need. And why is that? Because the amounts of cash that they have in their pockets are just insufficient to continue accessing the nutrition they need because the cost of the basic food basket on which they depend has increased by 30 to 50% over the last few months. So in French, it's called pouvoir d'achat, power of purchase. The power of purchase of the cash in people's pockets for a mix of reasons has just declined. And the result is that essentially hundreds of millions of people get poorer. And because they get poorer, a whole stack of things just become more and more difficult, harder to educate their children, harder to work for good health care, harder to, to move around because travel costs are so expensive. And so it's a food crisis that's within an overall cost of living crisis, which is essentially hundreds of millions of people getting poorer. The second thing that may happen in the months to come is that actually because of fertilizers being in short supply and some farmers just being unable to get the fertilizers they need for their planting or finishing, we may end up with actual total overall shortages of certain key foodstuffs. Now, everybody's working super hard to try to prevent that because a world shortage of some key food commodities could be a huge, huge problem. Uh, it does mean that we are going to have to learn to eat alternative food staples, perhaps from the ones we're used to. It does mean that we have to learn to get more local production in places that haven't done it before. So taken together, access problem now because of poverty, potential availability problem in the coming months, really because of fertilizer access has been so difficult. That's, that's very dire, David. So it sounds like we have more or less a distribution and a financial crisis today, and we may have a future mm. crisis of, of shortages. So we at IFA mm. looked at some 94 countries, which is home to well over 1.6 billion people. And when mm. we looked at it, what they are exposed to, they are exposed to financial crisis, they're exposed to energy shortages, they're exposed to food shortages. And it's very hard to disentangle the three because they all go hand in hand. So you described a little bit how we got here. What mm. I'm interested in, how do we get out of here? How do we actually start disentangling it and making sure that people eat today and that people have enough to eat six months from now at the next harvest? In the UN Global Crisis Response Group, we see the food, energy, fertilizer and financial challenges faced by countries as pretty well inseparable. At the same time, we also recognize that they are interdependent. So it's really hard to help a country with a lot of food being imported to handle the increasing cost of food imports associated with uh, reductions in availability of foreign exchange because of depreciation of their currency linked to existing debts that they might have. I mean, how can that country be helped unless 
there is a solid effort to assist with debt service payments and to enable them to access the foreign exchange needed to purchase the food that their people need. And so what it does mean is that the dealing with the current food access crisis requires attention to the financial challenges faced by some of the world's poorest and most indebted nations. Indeed, there are around 43 countries in the world that are facing quite difficult situations with servicing their debt. Many of these countries are those which have to import a lot of food, facing higher import costs. To help them, it is essential that the world can give them access to cash to deal with their what we call fiscal constraints so that they can make these imports. So it's finance now to resolve the food access crisis that is so strong. But when it comes to looking ahead to the future, we need to think very hard about how to increase access to key fertilizers and other inputs for food production so that there's not an absolute shortage uh, in the coming months. So it's not just a question of the purchasing power of a population. It is almost a purchasing power of a country and balance of payment of, of countries, right? Because we have seen the case of Sri Lanka in, in the recent past that couldn't import plant nutrients, couldn't import much of anything because of the balance of payment crisis. And we have seen the direct impact on population, on the level of hunger, on the level of malnutrition. So this is really serious. It's a micro crisis of consumer's pocket. But as you rightly pointed out, it is also a global macro crisis because of yeah. so many countries in high level of indebtedness. So let us now pivot a little bit into the global crisis response group that you were chairing. Yeah. And I was very happy that my company managed to contribute some of it. Can you share with us main findings and recommendations from the group? Really very important when we are dealing with problems with food in today's world to keep trade open. You see, what tends to happen when food supplies get short is that quite often a government will say, we are going to restrict exports. As soon as a country places a ban on exports, other countries may decide to follow suit. And then if there is a domino effect of several countries banning exports, what goes on? Prices go up. And of course, there is some speculation on the markets, which perhaps occasionally pushes prices up higher. And so we get incredible volatility. And now that has been known for a long time. So there's a lot of effort by the Global Crisis Response Group to keep markets open. That's why the United Nations Secretary General also worked hard to get the grain and oil seeds that are stuck in Ukraine to come out to get them onto the market. And while we're so excited that although it's taken a bit of time to get going, as a result of the agreements that have been made to establish the Black Sea Grain Initiative, that actually, yes, the food is moving, and we've seen prices come down, and we've seen, with the help of the World Food Programme and others, that key grain uh, shipments are beginning to get into countries that are short of food. 
So that effort to get the markets working right is hugely important. Then, of course, we see that many, many governments are saying we also need to build up our own local production capacity so we're not so dependent on imports. It may mean encouraging people to shift their dietary preferences. It may mean we have to put new land under cultivation. Of course, we hope that they won't cut down forests to do that. We really want them not to damage the environment. But we understand that resilience is key. Thirdly, of course, part of the problem, and I have to say this, I hope you won't mind me saying it, is that fertiliser is caught up in a lot of what's going on at the moment, and particularly the conflict uh, in Ukraine, because uh, fertiliser comes out of Ukraine, comes out of Belarus, comes out of Russia. It, it tends to be processed in, in, in Ukraine before it I mean, ammonia moving from Russia into Ukraine and exported from Ukraine. So these, these countries that are in, uh, involved in the conflict uh, are, are also hugely important in the world fertiliser market. So uh, actually fertilisers being a commodity that has really been hit very badly by what's gone on especially recently. So the prices of energy have risen and the prices of fertiliser have risen. They almost track each other, but there are some peculiarities on fertiliser. And so our conclusion is that we have to do two things. One is to make sure that every effort is made to keep as much fertiliser on the world markets as possible so that there will not be shortages for farmers leading to possible cutbacks in production. Secondly, we would like to be sure that poorer farmers, what we call the smallholder farmers, can access the fertiliser they need uh, at an affordable price so that they don't go out of business. And that particularly applies to farmers at the present time in Africa. So these two areas of focus, the global fertiliser system got to be kept going and uh, trying to keep as much as possible on the market, remembering there's no sanctions on fertiliser uh, or food at the present time. But secondly, special efforts to look after smallholders in parts of the world where their lack of access to fertiliser could put many of them out of business. David, thank you. You're highlighting a couple of really important points, which is what is, I think, what we call an optimization problem, right? If you optimize across a, a global marketplace, you're going to get better outcomes than when you optimize across a particular territory. And that's why those the policies that focus on optimization across one country and therefore restrict trade are so difficult. On the local production capacity, it's, it's interesting what you mentioned about putting more land under cultivation. We do have to be careful, however, of and uh, mindful of the biodiversity issues. And uh, yeah. those are one of the critical constraints as we go forward on this. But what is absolutely critical, and I want to highlight it for our listeners, is your focus on smallholders. I think those are the ones yeah. that need to get access to fertilizer, access to seeds, access to be able to produce their own food. And here, the private sector is stepping up to help for example, some of our members, OCP, Yara, ETG, are providing humanitarian deliveries, sort of in a two-for-one style uh, transactions to countries in Africa that are in planting season right now. You may have seen Ghana, Uganda, and there is an effort to supply the same for Mozambique and Madagascar in the coming weeks so that 
farmers can plant. So this is the private sector, but we know that private sector is not, not going to do it all. What do you think governments can do to facilitate that focus on smallholders so that they can grow food for the next season or next two seasons on their land? So fertilizer is becoming an increasingly precious commodity, more and more expensive. At the same time, some chemical fertilizers in many settings are essential, uh, but I would like to see more and more efforts to ensure that they're used efficiently, and I'd like to see more and more efforts to encourage the use of organic uh, soil nutrition solutions. It's all around this notion that fertilizer is becoming an increasingly precious commodity. But what do you do when you've got something that's essential but precious and expensive? I mean, in all societies, what governments do is they provide some input to bring down the cost of this precious essential commodity, but especially for people who are most in need, the poorest people with the land holdings, where a certain amount of fertilizer is essential, but they can't afford to buy it. So I'm a great, great believer that that, that is what has to happen in modern societies. Look at me, I'm a medical doctor. There are some treatments that are just incredibly expensive, that if people had to buy them with money out of their pocket, they wouldn't be able to afford it. So you depend on governments or insurance to try to help those who need these expensive products to get them on the basis of uh, a, a more general contribution. And that's what I think has to happen to fertiliser, that you reduce the cost for the end user through the provision of uh, finance to buy down the price and that finance to buy down the price can be provided by a government, by a company, by an international organisation. Ideally, it should involve an effort of all of them. And I've watched as the International Fertiliser Association and some of its member companies have come together and said, yes, we're going to be part of an initiative to bring down the uh, end-user cost of fertilisers, specifically for smallholder farmers. We'll link it to a very careful programme on nutrient use efficiency, stimulating also the better production of organic fertilisers and their efficient use. So we get blends, and that becomes the style of the future of fertiliser access in low-income communities. You describe what's happening in Ghana and what's happening in Uganda. I'm seeing it pick up like a sort of snowball effect. Uh, the conventional language for it is social marketing. And what's great about it is you buy down the price, but it still goes out through the private distribution channels. I think it's great. And you, in you're, at the same time, you're trying to keep the small and medium enterprises on which rural agriculture is so dependent continuing to function by maintaining the distribution of the private sector and not creating an alternative or parallel system. And I'm really excited by what you're all doing on this. This is very good to hear. What we don't want to do is destroy the market that we so carefully created over the past 10, 15 years, because these agro-dealers, these co-ops, they have a role to play in the food system, right? But on the other hand, as you rightly pointed out, fertilizer is pricey and it's very important and therefore using it efficiently is as important yeah. as using it at all. So nutrient use efficiency definitely has to come in. 
So David, we, we covered a lot of ground, uh, but I'd like to go back to where we started, which is nutrition. And it's not just calories, it's nutrients. And that begs broader question. How do we make our food systems better? And how do we make our food systems more resilient so that the number of hungry people in the next 10, 15 years will go down to zero? Thanks very much indeed. I want to start by saying there's nothing standing in the way of all the world's people being able to access the nutrition that they need through the food that they eat in order to enjoy good health and well-being, whilst at the same time protecting our precious environment, our water, our forests, our oceans, and stopping them from being damaged with the loss of biodiversity. It's a soluble equation. However, there are a number of structural challenges that make it hard to solve. For a start, the policies that underlie food systems development in many countries have not traditionally been based on what's best for people's nutrition. The policies that underlie food and agriculture have not been based always on what's best for the environment or for the climate. And we're saying put environmental objectives, put climate objectives, nutrition objectives, and most importantly, equity objectives right up at the top when you are devising and then implementing food policies. Now, last year, the UN Secretary General hosted a summit called the UN Food Systems Summit, and he invited governments everywhere to come to the summit and say, we've thought hard about the future of our food systems, and this is the pattern we wish to follow. And actually, 140 countries went through this process, encouraging all the different stakeholders to come together and work through what needs to happen, focusing all the time on what food systems we need by 2030. There was no shortage of brilliant ideas from 110,000 people leading to strategic pathways to the future in more than 110 countries. And those pathways are alive and they're being used and food systems transformation is happening. And it's happening all over the place, particularly in, in Africa, we see it, right, because there's an African Union common position, particularly in different parts of Asia, particularly in the Pacific, in the Latin America. It's in many different regions. Now, what really matters is that decision makers just prioritise what matters for people and the planet in the years to come and let the processes evolve guided by those objectives, what the UN Secretary General calls the areas of convergence, linked to climate, linked to sustainability, linked to equity, and linked to resilience. Let these transformations happen. We will get to a really good place. There's enough energy at country level. But to do that, the various different forces, the power forces that keep a strong control on our food system need to embrace this food systems transformation that's happening all over the world. 
Uh, it's a long, ongoing story. Alzbetta, the International Fertilizer Association, is very much part of it because as a responsible trade association, you realize that your companies and the future of your companies depends on them being able to market fertilizer as a very precious, very valuable, but also a potentially uh, threatening commodity that we need to use right for the good of people and the planet. David, we're going to wrap up on those wise words. I am delighted to hear that there is nothing stopping us to make it work. There is nothing stopping us to help feed the world sustainably and make sure that the world is fed sustainably. Thank you so much for joining us and have a great day. Thank you very much indeed.